The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money. And the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you the best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year win. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take a shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with code PFF, and draft your Best Ball Mania team today. Welcome, everybody, to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. We have an action-packed, I guess you could say, morning from an NFL news perspective with the Deshaun Watson decision coming out. I will cover that from top to bottom, the rationale behind the decision, the reasons why or why not this particular Six-game suspension was chosen. The likelihood or rationale behind appealing on the part of the NFL, which they have a couple days to do, and the potential fallout for the Browns as a franchise. Because at a certain point, we have to start talking about the impacts that are going here. I thought that the NFL and some of the media insiders made some mistakes, tripped over themselves a little bit too much prematurely discussing some of the sweepstakes angle of the Watson story after the criminal charges were they decided not to go forward with them in the grand jury. Now, as we're getting closer and closer to the season and in a couple of days, we'll have a resolution as to whether or not the NFL is looking to appeal this decision, whether it will stand as six games or not. You know, we, we, we have to get into what's going to go on here in the season And I'll have a cold, hard, numbers-based look at this Browns team, which I've hinted a few times before this because of all of the uncertainty surrounding Watson. Two things. One, he was maybe being underplayed as far as how great of a quarterback he had actually grown into on the field before this. If you look at different rankings that have come out at other places, they have him at, you know, eight, nine, something like that. I think there's a good argument that he's even better than that. And the Browns' chances for not only a playoff run, but a substantial playoff run this year, if this six-game suspension holds, are pretty high right now. And there will be, of course, PR implications for that for the NFL if we have the Browns not only in the playoffs, but making a run deep into the playoffs within a year of this decision being handed down and the criminal charges not going forward and him settling all these lawsuits. All that will be happening essentially in this calendar year, which is going to be a difficult talking point for all involved in figuring out how this ended up happening. But we're also going to get into some other news today. I had a pretty long and detailed analysis on training camp signal versus noise, what you can 
build into your analysis what you should filter out and to the degree to which we're still going to go over a lot of that. But that's after hitting the more topical stuff of Watson and then some of the wide receiver contracts that we saw being signed, specifically DK Metcalf and then Depot Samuel since the last time I was here. Okay, so let's talk Watson first. We, unless you've been under a rock this morning or you just woke up, uh, welcome to my West Coast viewers here. Um, you saw that Watson had a six-game suspension. Over time, not just because of the fact that there have been these leaks coming out, these trial balloons being thrown out there, whether it's pro football talk, mentioning that the NFL will not appeal a suspension if it comes somewhere in that six to eight game range, some positive talk on the part of the NFLPA, not wanting to appeal whatever suspension ruling was going to be, was going to come down and some other drips of information that was out there. This decision isn't wholly unexpected. And in fact, in some ways, as I started to look more and more into this, the actual language of the personal conduct policy, it became more apparent to me why this six-game number, while not appropriate, if you look at the magnitude and even the the arbitrator, Sue Robson, called this an egregious violation, but maybe difficult to fit into any other box other than the baseline six-game suspension. So I think it's important to look at the exact wording when we're talking about what happened here before we get too out in front of our skis in analyzing whether or not this is the correct decision, because this is also going to come into play when we talk about the appeal that's going to happen on the part of the NFL. Remember, the NFL's original recommendation was for an indefinite suspension where he could apply after one season. If you read the letter of the law, and I'm going to bring up some of this here so you're able to to see if you read the letter of the law on here this is the language from the cba and the language for the personal conduct policy didn't really change in the 2020 cba how it's adjudicated changed with the fact that they're bringing this independent arbitrator but the language itself did not change that that much so this falls underneath the personal conduct policy it falls underneath Uh, sexual assault in the personal conduct policy. And if you read the exact language here, it says a first offense will subject the offender to a baseline suspension of six games. So that's what we're talking about here. This is the baseline that we came out today with consideration to any aggravating or mitigating factors. So the aggregate, the the aggravating factors could push this further higher than six games. And I think that's where the NFL was making a case that there were aggravating factors here. And then Watson's side would be saying there weren't. Now, when you look at, it has here a list of possible aggravating factors, but it does say they're not limited to these factors. So there is some wiggle room here for the NFL if they want to appeal that. It says not limited to. But if you look at the actual examples that are given here of what the aggravating factors are, which could push it higher than the baseline of six games, So none of these Sue Robinson, the arbitrator, believed applied to this case. So the different different things that we talked about here is, A, a prior violation of the personal conduct policy. I think that this, if you go through all of these, is probably the 
the strongest that you can make the case for is to say because of all the multiple violations, there are prior violations of the personal conduct policy. But the spirit of the law here and how this is meant to be adjudicated probably means a clear and defined previous suspension underneath the personal conduct policy. So it probably does not apply here. And that's what Sue Robinson uh, decided. The, the rest of them are similar misconduct before joining the NFL. That would not apply. Violence involving a weapon, choking, repeated striking. That one would not apply here. And that was part of the ruling was specifically saying the absence of violence in this in this case or in these cases. When an act is committed against a, pers- a particularly vulnerable person, such as a child, pregnant woman, or elderly person, or where the act is committed in the presence of a child. None of these apply. So that's the letter of the law re- rationale behind how we got the decision that we got today for Deshaun Watson. And it says a second offense will result in per- permanent banishment from the NFL And you may apply for reinstatement after one year. So the NFL was treating Watson and its recommendation as almost as if this was a quote unquote second offense. And I think the problem here is, according to the letter of the law, it doesn't allow for an aggravating factor, at least of those mentioned, for the fact that there are so many different accusers in this situation. None of them reach the bar of violence as defined here. None of them reach the bar of presence of a child or things like that. But there were so many different accusers that the NFL could decide to go for the appeal here and decide that while it's not listed exactly in the personal conduct policy, there are aggravating factors that should push this for being more than a six-game suspension. The problem is they would be risking, obviously, relationship with the NFL PA which is going to not only push back against this, will likely sue them, uh, could go to federal court about this, about violence. You are essentially ignoring or strongly disagreeing with the ruling of an independent arbitrator you agreed to put there. The PR and optics of this, it probably helps the decision get being upheld for the fact that Sue Robinson is a woman. And that's part of the you know, ickiness of the cold calculus as to whether or not the decision will be appealed or not. They have some deflection there, as we saw with a, honestly, a pretty cowardly press conference from the Browns and Jimmy Haslam when they first brought him on, that Haslam was more than willing to throw his wife and daughters under the bus by saying that they had veto power on this deal and chose not to use that veto power. So again, the, the cynical use of the person making the decision here is a woman. They can they can lean back against that. And better yet, when it comes to the NFL, this is the first time they have gone through this new process of having the arbitrator, an independent arbitrator. If in the first instance of this happening, Goodell and the NFL is going to cast that aside, is going to substantially increase the suspension to something like a year. Is that going to be worth burning the bridges when it comes to the NFLPA, making a farce somewhat of this independent process, despite the fact that a decorated judge 
took a month to consider the evidence, the testimony, and came down with a particular ruling. Can they really just throw that aside and then go forward and move forward? Well, ultimately, they do have that power. There's one instance under under which the NFL would not have had the power to appeal um, or no one would have had the power to appeal. And that would have been if Sue Robinson decided, the independent arbitrator decided, that there was no violation of the personal conduct policy. So if she had decided there was no suspension, no violation, the NFL in that circumstance would not have had the power to even appeal. So they do have the power to appeal here, and we'll see what they end up doing. So I kind of laid out the case against appealing. What is the case for appealing? Well, the case for appealing is that the different aggravating factors that I mentioned here, while none of the explicitly mentioned ones are part of this, it could be seen as such an egregious number of accusations and the credibility of those accusations that something is warranted beyond the standard baseline penalty. That could be part of it. Another part of the reason for going for an appeal here will be the optics of when Deshaun Watson will come back in the middle of the season. And as I'll lay out when I talk about the Browns and their playoff chances, their team success chances, their Super Bowl chances now under these assumptions that he's going to be playing most likely into the postseason here. That is the more likely outcome is that the Browns will make the playoffs now if he is only suspended for six games and all the optics behind that Goodell may, may want to do something in that regard uh, but we have 48 hours basically before that is decided and then the commissioner will have to though sign off on this either way even if an appeal is not decided the commissioner will have to sign off on it so whether or not he'll want to actually sign off on that I think is a good question Okay, so let's turn over to the Browns, what this means for them as a team. Because again, it's something that probably hasn't been properly weighted. Um, most of the odds on them boosted up quite substantially this morning. The Browns were about a 30 to 1 chance to win the Super Bowl, 16 to 1 to win the conference championship, to come out of the AFC and go to the Super Bowl this morning. Now they're 20 to 1 and 11 to 1 when it comes to winning the AFC. And if we look, you know, a little bit further into this here, um, the numbers here, I'm looking at Bet MGM here, where they end up standing here at plus 2,000, so 20 to 1 to win the Super Bowl, it's equal to the Bengals and the Ravens right now, better than the Colts, better than the Eagles. And their AFC champions, uh, probability again equal to the Ravens and the Bengals. So if they're equal to these teams without having Watson there for the first six games, I think it's you know logically obvious at that point that they, as a full squad with everyone there, including Watson, that the Browns are probably a better team and probably the best team in the AFC North. That is going to be a fact. And when you think about where we're going to be sitting, where the NFL is going to be sitting in week seven, where when Watson returns, well, let's just look at the schedule that the Browns have 
for the first six weeks of the season. Um, and what the look ahead point spreads are on this. So they're at Carolina week one. They're one and a half point dog, which is interesting because they were a one point favorite not that long ago. But when things move around the, you know, around pick them plus minus one, it's not that big of a factor. But basically a toss up week one, four and a half point favorite week two, four point favorite, well, four and a half point favorite against the Jets week two, four point favorite against the Steelers week four, four and a half point favorite against the Falcons. Um, the Chargers three point underdog at home to the Chargers. So that's the substantial dog there, although not, you know, six, seven, eight touchdown or something like that, but a pretty big dog. And then, somewhat surprisingly, a two and a half point favorite at home against the Patriots. Now, from week seven on, they have they have kind of a gauntlet here, um, going against you know Ravens, Bengals, Bills in there, Bucks in there, Ravens, Bengals again. Uh, you know, Steelers at the Steelers the last week of the season. So they have a bit of a gauntlet there as far as who they're going to have to go through other than the Texans week 13. That will be a very interesting game because he'll be presumably we'll see Deshaun Watson quarterback in the team in Houston for that game. But if you just add up the implied probabilities here based upon the money lines for these different games and the point spreads for these different games, we're looking at a team when Watson comes back in week seven that is most likely going to have three wins. Three and three is a little bit on the low side. Their expected wins out of these six games is more in the neighborhood of 3.4, 3.5 expected wins. So this could very easily be a four and two team having one of the easiest schedules, perhaps the easiest schedule the first six weeks of the season. This could be a four and two team before Watson comes back. I mean, this could, under some circumstances, could be a 5-1 and one team when Watson comes back in Week 7. And that just makes the playoff chances that much more relevant. I mean, they are basically minus 200-ish to make the playoffs, so about a 65% chance of them making the playoffs this year. Substantial, substantial, substantial chance that we're going to be seeing a lot of Deshaun Watson down the stretch. How the NFL is going to deal with the PR from that, I'm not quite sure. One thing I will mention, though, is, you know, Twitter is not and social media are not the real world. So the the outrage and the PR that we're seeing there doesn't necessarily translate over to what we'll see from the fan base or what we'll see across the greater NFL public. Certainly does not translate as to what we see across NFL players and the NFL PA and other sorts of constituents that the NFL needs to keep in mind when they're figuring out what to do with this decision. I mean, I believe they should appeal because of the unique nature of the circumstances at the same time i don't think it's as much of a slam dunk decision as some others do because of wanting to respect the process that has been laid down and the independence of that process has been laid down on the part of the nfl all right let's get into some of the wide receiver contracts that have gone on here putting deshaun watson if we can a little bit into the rear view mirror here. So I think you have to look at all of these contracts in totality. I know we got the news for DK Metcalf. We got the news for Debo Samuel. Metcalf and Samuel, pretty good deals. The Samuel deal almost mirrors what we saw from Metcalf. So three years, somewhere a little bit over 70 million. 
roughly the same guarantees, slightly lower. Not quite sure on the full guarantees yet we're going to see from Samuel. I was a little surprised, honestly, to see as much as we did for Debo Samuel. I thought maybe he was a step down in some people's minds, despite having so much more production last year. With a new quarterback coming in, not having Garoppolo there, I thought perhaps there would be a bit of a skepticism as to whether or not he could keep up that sort of production that we had seen from him in the past, being more of a yards after catch guy, being less of a prototypical alpha wide receiver one. But he and Metcalf and Brown were all second round guys. They were not first round guys, despite the fact that Brown and Metcalf probably fit more of that dominant wide receiver one profile. McLaurin, a third round guy, gets a little bit less, but I think that was to be expected. Also, a couple interesting things to think about here. One, I think, is age when it comes into this. Now, DK Metcalf is only going to turn 25 years old in December of this year. So with a three-year deal, remember, we don't have the fifth-year option on these on these contracts. So with a three-year deal here for DK, which is going to be added to the final year of his contract, which he would be playing into right now, the fourth year of his contract. So it'll be four years from now, he would be a free agent. And if we talk about negotiations, when the negotiations will happen for that third contract, it's likely to come even a year earlier. So we're talking about three years out from now, he will be 27 years old and negotiating his third contract. That's a huge deal for him. And I think even older players like Debo Samuel. See, Debo Samuel is going to turn 27 in January. DK turns 25 in December. Debo turns 27 in January. So he's quite a bit older. Even for him, getting that three years means he will be 29. So he will not be 30, at least yet, when he's negotiating again. McLaurin, a little bit older. He turns 27 in September. So he'll be, and he, he has a three year deal too. He'll be there. And AJ Brown, he's 26 next June. So he's a little bit older than DK, but still on the younger side there. He has a four year deal, but the last year on his contract is one of these 30 million plus numbers, which, you know, helped boost up that number helped boost up the number to make it look like he's making more money than the other guys but we'll see if that actually gets played out or not if he ends up being released before that last year of that contract ends up happening he again will be back in the market at 28 years old and that will be pretty good timing for him to be 28 29 years old right then i mean just really an amazing growth for these contract amounts and i get it you have you know your your Rookie contract in San Francisco for your quarterback. You have basically you're paying nobody in Seattle. So he's your one great player. And this is an awesome contract for DK Metcalf as far as the cash flows are concerned here. Um, AJ Brown, again, Jalen Hurts, you're paying him nothing as a second round pick. And then Terry McLaurin, you are paying Carson Wentz, but we'll see how long he will be there. You certainly do not have... Have you not tethered yourself to a five, six, seven-year commitment like you have on some of these other younger quarterbacks there, which has made all of this possible? But as this higher end starts to move up, I think you will see teams like, for instance, the Steelers, who have not offered a formal contract reportedly to Deontay Johnson, another receiver from that class. There are going to be some teams that are going to continue to operate like that. And if they can trade players, well, I'm not sure Deontay Johnson will 
gather the same sort of trade compensation that we've seen for these others. But if they can trade players, that becomes an option. Or letting players walk, the same thing they did with Juju Smith-Schuster, where they basically never really thought about offering them a contract. I think there's going to be a bifurcation in the NFL now of teams who are willing to give these sorts of deals to young receivers, to top-notch receivers, and those who aren't. Those are going to work around it and to tend to go back into the draft over and over again. I think the latter group may have an advantage here if these deals continue to be at this level. Because again, especially at three years, you're buying yourself something here. But what you're buying yourself beyond the cost of a couple of franchise tags, having to go back in and negotiate three, four years in the future already on these deals, you're not buying yourself a lot here. So without the gaping hole in the spending from having a rookie quarterback, a cheap quarterback, I don't know how these receivers are going to continue to be very affordable for teams that want to have them going forward. I mean, much congratulation, of course, to these players, to getting these deals. I think for Debo, though, I would have held off if I were the 49ers for one more year just to see what's happening with Lance, how he fits together whether it's Ayuk or Samuel that ends up taking the jump this year, because I think there is an argument that Debo Samuel's run after the catch work over the middle of the field was uniquely situated to link up with Jimmy Garoppolo and what he did well, whether that will continue or not with Trey Lance, we will find out this season. But for now, he's going to be a 49er for at least the next few years. Okay, before we get into larger training camp signal or noise, breaking down everything that's happening there, letting you separate through what you should care about and what you don't care about right now, I am going to tell you about our sponsor at Manscaped. Gentlemen, we all strive for gold in our life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there's a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He has a big hairless winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right, Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is a leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping it with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get your platinum package for your platinum package. All right, let's talk training camp. Oh my God, the inundation of clips and pictures and narratives and thoughts about everything. I wanted to frame this as signal versus noise for those who are familiar with the work of Nate Silver. He had a pretty famous book called the signal and the noise talking about looking at information, the fire hose of information we're getting and be able to pick out what actually signals something that can help us in our predictions versus just randomness and noise. While it is information, it is evidence doesn't really affect how we're going to view things going forward. I talked about this briefly with Josh Hermsmeyer on last Wednesday's pod about training camp. He heavily pointed to injuries as being the one thing that you can, that you can rely on everything else you can filter out. I don't think it's so binary. I don't think it's look at this thing 
injuries 100% and then filter out everything else. I think there are varying degrees on how we can look at this. So I'm going to label different categorical examples of what we're seeing coming out of training camp, how you should see them on the scale of signal versus versus noise. And I think it's also important in particular to realize that the information, the evidence itself that we're getting when it comes to somewhat quali- uh, qualitative information from these beat writers can be a little bit confusing. I mean, for instance, I think one of the best examples that I saw um, over the weekend here was talk from that Adam Levitan posted on here uh, via Twitter. If you look at if you look at what he had on the screen here, he has a good example of how even evidence from beat reporters is really really difficult from to figure out what we're going to do. The example here is in Broncos camp. We're trying to figure out who's going to be the lead back, Javante Williams or Melvin Gordon. And you think that's something you could get a pretty good impression from if you were there in camp. Yet he showed an example of how Benjamin Albright had four different points for his observations over Broncos camp the first two days. The fourth point being running back split looks like it's going to be pretty even again. So that would be a huge implications, especially for fantasy football degenerates out there who were thinking that Javante Williams in his second season is going to take a step forward, whereas Melvin Gordon actually was basically a complete 50-50 split last year, if that's going to happen again. Yet we have another observer in an article who says, I think Gordon is the clear backup and will be competing for Boone for the number two job. So it just just shows that two different observers to what's going on in camp – can have two different views and why it's so important that we don't just rely upon the one view that we had heard here. Okay, so let's look at some of the things that are big here in camp. Okay, I'd say rookie receivers. People cannot get enough of the rookie receivers and all that they're doing in camp. I'm going to put this in the mostly noise number. The one thing that would be signal is if these guys are not even getting on the field or not even getting practice reps with the ones that's something that there's going to be some signal to, but most of the rest of it is noise. And what I think is really interesting, especially if you look at, you know, George Pickens has probably been one of the favorites on here that everyone is showing everything that he's doing this year and these ridiculous catches that he's making in, in practice, he's leaning back, he's catching it over, over his head away from guys He's making, you know, insane grabs and then running down the sideline afterwards, all these different things that he's doing. But what's interesting to me is we have this now this notion within prospect evaluation is, oh, you don't want a contested catch. You don't want a contested catch receiver as a prospect because that's not something that you're going to find is definable on the next level. That's not something that's going to be sticky. Contested catches can be all over the place as far as their ability to rely upon them going forward. Yet when you look at the most shared moments from camp here, a lot of it is just contested catches and people going nuts for these contested catches that are going, that are going on here. So that type of stuff I'm going to fade. I mean, can George Pickens be the greatest rookie receiver ever? It's possible. But again, these are not the types of plays and not the types of catches that we should be relying upon for our analysis unless we're purely saying he is on the field. And I think there's a good chance that guys like Pickens will eventually see what 
was termed, and I think one of the greatest terms ever in a fantasy football analysis called rookie derangement syndrome, where we start valuing rookies for their newness way, way over veteran players, whether they're second or third year players who are already acclimated, already have their roles secure and could have a much, much easier jump in efficiency going forward. We'll see where in fantasy football drafts, guys like George Pickens are going versus Chase Claypool later on in the season. I could see the former. I could see Pickens even being drafted pretty close to or above him if the buzz continues to be there. And I think that would be a mistake from what we know about in NFL circles. I mean, the same thing is happening. This is not just a George Pickens specific thing. The same thing is happening with Drake London, where we're seeing you know clips of him honestly not getting that much separation, but making plays, contested catch plays, going up against, in this particular clip that was shared a lot, he was going up against D. Alford, who was playing in the CFL last year and played for a, I don't know, Division II school when he was in college. So I'm, again, fading all that stuff. It's going to be mostly confirmation bias, even if it's a receiver you love like Sky Moore. Now, the one rookie who I will give a little bit more credit to is Traylon Burks. And that is because the news that we're getting from Burks, yeah, some of it we're getting the thirst trap highlights. You know, we're getting him going against Roger McCreary multiple times and just embarrassing him. Um, I mean, I'll give him a little bit of credit because he's actually getting separation on some of these routes and he's going against a second round NFL draft pick, not someone from the, you know, Saskatchewan swashbucklers or whatever the uh the cfl teams are but i'm still mostly fading that what i'm buying is the fact that he fell so much earlier this year burks's perception fell so much earlier this year not only in fantasy markets but also in his props where he had about a hundred yard advantage in his seasonal prop over drake london and was about equal in his touchdown prop to Drake London to start the offseason after the draft, where we knew that he was going to be playing for the Tennessee Titans, then their props are almost equal now. He's lesser on the touchdown prop. Burks is below London on the touchdown prop. But if you look at fantasy football markets, they were neck and neck, maybe Burks a little bit higher in mid-May before his conditioning concerns hit. Burks dropped almost a couple of rounds. It has now started to jump back up, but he still has a while to go up. So I think, while it's not an injury take. It's adjacent to an injury take to say for Traylon Burks that yes, we should be changing our perception of what we're seeing now, not because he's bullying cornerbacks on these routes, but because his conditioning seems to be there. Now he's lost weight. He has no problem finishing any of the practices. And that was probably a mistake. In fact, and a correction that we need to make now, the fact that he was driven down so much. And that is something that is signal going forward for Burks. The rest of the rookie receivers, I would say, is mostly noise, what we're seeing now, and not to get too excited about the fact, other than they're going to be on the field. Just being on the field has not been enough in the past for rookie receivers to reliably produce or lead their teams in receiving. Uh, Romeo Dubs, though, is a little bit of a combination of signal and noise he is getting on the field Um, but stuff about you know oh he's he's got the dog in him he's making play after play I mean that helps I think more for a receiver who was taken later in the draft but more importantly is the fact that they just don't have a lot of players for the Packers and 
Dubs's perception should be increasing and his likelihood of pr- production should be increasing, not with the sparkling reports, but, but for the fact that there is real news on his target competition, specifically Christian Watkins, who uh, Watson, who they traded up for in the second round. He had knee surgery now and still is not participating in camp. Will he be able to get going? Maybe. Maybe he'll be able to get going here. We saw famously guys like Odell Beckham Jr. miss basically all of camp, miss the beginning of the season with some soft tissue injuries, and then come and completely destroy down the stretch. But I would say that's probably not ideal for for Watson. So that is a real piece of news. Again, there's some real signal in there that I would be paying attention to. And if you look at their ADPs right now between the two in fantasy football drafts, which I think is probably the best crowdsourced way of getting a perception of these different players. I mean, we are seeing the gaps start to close somewhat. Still a long way to go, though, between the two. And it's mostly we're seeing some decline for Watson here. People are really not believing in his chances to make an impact as a somewhat raw rookie. Okay, let's get into the injuries because this is the important, this is the true signal that we're getting from training camp. And I want to, I don't want to overstate the importance of these injuries. I think anytime we have anything that happens, an injury can be overstated. And I think there are two separate ways to think about injuries when it comes to things that happen in the NFL. There's a quarterback and then there's everybody else. And to give you an example, um, a pretty a pretty funny example of what it means to have a quarterback injury. There's a, a funny story in Ron Jaworski, Jaws, former quarterback for the uh, Eagles and uh, went to the Super Bowl, lost to the Raiders though, uh, with the Eagles and then also a commentator for ESPN. He wrote a book called The Games That Changed the Game. And he has an anecdote, an anecdote in here where he talks about working for – for Monday Night Football broadcast ESPN with John Gruden. I don't know the exact year, but this would probably be 2009 or 2010. And they visited the Colts in practice the week before they were going to play on Monday Night Football. And while they were there, John Gruden and Ron noticed that Manning, Peyton Manning, the quarterback for the Colts at the time, was taking all of the snaps, all of the reps. There was basically no reps going to his backup, and John asked Tom Moore, the offensive coordinator at the time for the Colts, he asked him, hey, you know, why aren't you giving any practice reps to backups? Like, what if you need them during the game? What's going to happen? And the story is Moore looked at them, paused for a moment, and he said, fellas, if 18 goes down, we're fucked, and we don't practice fucked. So in other words, if Peyton Manning went down, they were, and I think it's appropriate saying, quarterback injury, if a great quarterback injury, you are fucked. Now, an injury to an offensive lineman, a wide receiver, a defensive player, even an Aaron Donald, it hurts. It hurts substantially, but you're not fucked. So we have to think about that in the larger context to say, these injuries that are happening in training camp, they are not of the fucked variety, but we have to still consider them and their impacts on the game. The biggest one is probably the Ryan Jensen injury, the the Bucks center. And not just because of Jensen himself, who was about a 0.2, 0.3 war type of player. So 
anywhere from a fifth to a quarter of a win there. So not just because of Jensen going down, but because of the offensive line. And we talk about cluster injuries. When we've seen offensive lines fall apart in the past, two prime examples would be the Bucks themselves when they had multiple injuries last year and Tom Brady constantly under pressure against the Rams. And of course, the preeminent example that we've seen in recent years, the Chiefs facing the very same Bucks in the Super Bowl, where they had a slew of injuries across the offensive line and couldn't keep anyone away from Patrick Mahomes from any time at all. And I think why it's important, though, for the Bucks in particular, and not this one injury, but just looking overall why it's important, is that if we dig into their depth chart, there's been a lot of movement in the offseason. They lost um, Alex Kappa to the Bengals. They lost Ali Marpet to retirement. Jensen is now probably out for the season. That's all three of their interior players. Now they got Shaq Mason. So they got Shaq Mason in a trade, but didn't get, didn't really have to give up a whole lot for him. I don't know if that signals how much Belichick just didn't see him as a scheme fit or something, but that probably signals something. But at the very least, there is some unknown quantity, even to having Shaq Mason there. And when we talk about offensive lines as being this weak link system where your worst link is your most important thing, is having at least competent level play. Now, with Jensen likely out, we have three potential weak links that we did not have. They still have Donovan Smith. They still have Tristan Wirfs. But three potential weak links there. And even more so, the fragility level of this offensive line, no Gronk. Just remember, no Gronk there. If we go through all the different players here, no Gronk at tight end anymore. No Antonio Brown, although he was kind of MIA for a lot of last year. But he was, I think, a better option than Russell Gage or probably even how Julio Jones will play this year. Um, Just that extra layer of fragility where one more injury on the offensive line could really relegate it to paper mache status going up against some of the players they're going up against there. So for that reason, I think this Ryan Jensen injury, again, not your fucked level status that a quarterback that a Tom Brady injury would be, but it's something that we definitely need to pay attention to heavily. And that's a big point in news. Um, Another big point in news when we talk about offensive lines and maybe not having the same high level of protection that we had seen in the past is going to be what's happening with the green Bay Packers and specifically with David Bakhtiari and his knee rehab, what's going on there. If you look at the information here, it's not going well for Bakhtiari. Now, remember, he's first-team All-Pro selection in 2020. He only played 12 games. And now it has been 573 days since his initial injury, and he's still not practicing at this point. He's had three knee surgeries already, the last one being when OTAs began in May. He's calling it a nightmare what's happening to him after this ACL tear and subsequent injuries. And again, why it's important for the Green Bay Packers is not just Bakhtiari and himself, because we saw last year uh, Elton Elton Jenkins came in and he played pretty well in Bakhtiari's absence. Well, guess what? Jenkins is recovering from an injury. 
And the interior guys, yeah, you can piece that together. They've been able to piece that together pretty well. But again, a high degree of fragility here in the offensive line for the Green Bay Packers. And we've seen Rodgers play be a little bit more fragile when he doesn't have that up front. He's had pretty strong offensive lines for almost his entire time in Green Bay. So those two injuries, the Jensen injury, and in particular how Bakhtiari is able to recover along with Jenkins, although I think there are fewer problems with what's going on with Jenkins recovery than there is for Bakhtiari. How those two things are going to play together is going to be highly, highly, highly important for these teams and something to keep in mind on and definite signal that we're seeing in training camp. Uh, Some additional signal that we're seeing again, fade little clips of Michael Thomas running outs, but the fact that he's actually on the practice field is something to pay attention to. Remember this guy was, you know, fantasy wide receiver one overall and adds, at the very least, a lot of depth here to Winston, though we probably want to hold off on celebrating until we get a little bit longer into training camp. But the fact that he is out there, we have something now, some real evidence in the injury front of Michael Thomas being back, I think helps the Saints a lot. And especially within that NFC South, we're talking about the Saints getting that back, which they do not have, and then the Bucks having that fragility on the offensive line for, for Tom Brady. Those two things could be a major turning point and a shift in that thing, in that scenario. Now, depth chart is probably the next thing that has some signal, some combination of signal and noise. Depth chart, when it comes to the quarterback, much, much, much more signal than when we're talking about other positions. As I pointed out earlier in this whole Javante Williams versus Melvin Gordon thing, sometimes when guys are running with camp, when Kenneth Gainwell is running with the ones for the Eagles. That doesn't mean that Kenneth Gainwell, Gainwell is a starter. It just means they're running different scenarios. Players substitute in and out at these different positions, especially the skill positions that we're looking at here. So offensive depth chart when it comes to offensive line, if it's sticky, or other positions where players are playing all the time, in particular the quarterback, those are going to be the stickiest. So ones that I'm buying here, who, what, what am I buying when it comes to, and what am I saying is good signal when it comes to quarterbacks and depth chart. I mean, I'm buying Marcus Mariota as the starter for the Atlanta Falcons. So basically on the first day of training camp, uh, quarterbacks coach Charles London said, Marcus is the starter. A lot of things can change, obviously, between now and the beginning of the season. They have Desmond Ritter, a third round pick. But the reason I'm buying Mariota as a starter is just looking back on what he's done in his career. And I think people might not have the proper perspective on Mariota because he ha- he kind of washed out in that 2019 season and hasn't had a chance to show anything before. But if you look at how he's played over his career, his rookie year in 2015, his efficiency was pretty good. His grade was, was poor, the worst grade of his career. 2019 and 100 and, I don't know, 50 attempts or something like that before he got benched for Tannehill. He was having a struggle session there. But he was basically a league average quarterback in his second, third, and fourth seasons. Those three... That's a, that's a substantial sample through most of his career of being like a league average-ish sort of quarterback. Now, he could get injured, and I think there's a high possibility of that happening because of the way he plays and how he's gotten injured in the past and if they decide to run him there. But him holding off Desmond Ritter for the entire season wouldn't shock me here. The problem, of course, is the Falcons stink, and when they're losing games, people are going to probably want to see the rookie. But Mariota is someone who I think can hold off Ritter for longer than some people suspect quarterback 
depth chart that I'm not buying is Geno Smith having the lead over Drew Locke because neither one of these guys are any good. I mean, even Smith, when he had a couple of years where he was able to start for the Jets in 2013 and 2014, was well below league average in his efficiency, well below league average in his grading. And he was also running a lot to help get some of that efficiency up. The probability that either Geno or Drew Locke you know, start every game for the entire season, I'd put at a very, very, very low amount, maybe 5% probability. And I suspect that both of them are going to be starting a lot of games here. So fading and calling it noise, anything that you're hearing out of the quarterback competition, other than who will start potentially week one for that team, I don't think it has much carryover for the rest of the season. Okay, let's look at some of the positional guys. I think Antonio Gibson is probably the one guy where I am calling signal on some of this. The fact that he may be losing short yardage work to Brian Robinson, the rookie, and then also losing passing work to J.D. McKissick. And if you look at his ADP, Gibson's ADP in recent months for fantasy drafts, I mean, it's fallen precipitously, but it's not just based upon this news. It's been something that's happening all offseason. So I think this is something that you can build a little bit of signal into. Now, what am I selling? What are the biggest things that I'm selling here that I'm just labeling as noise? Okay, one of the bigger ones may be the Rams love with Allen Robinson. Uh, You may have seen this. There was something that blew up a little bit, mostly a tweet from Robert Mays where he said his main takeaway from two days at Rams camp was that the staff here is in love with Allen Robinson. From his approach in meetings to what he can give them in this off in this offense, his route tree, where he can line up, are more varied than they even hoped. Potential monster year incoming. So the thing is, people were pretty hip to Allen Robinson almost the entire offseason. His ADP has been rising in fantasy drafts. I think it'll probably continue to rise as we're as we're looking at what's happening here. But realistically, this is a player that the Rams signed for. A three-year contract, pretty substantial money, had put up production in the past. Yeah, the Rams like Allen Robinson. I don't see this. I see this as noise. I don't see this as as signal. The fact that they like a player who they just signed to a long-term contract, who they're going to have stepping in here. And again, whose ADP has been rising for months, despite the fact there's no actual real hard news as to what's going to happen here. He's been the presumed number two wide receiver in this offense the entire time. And if we look at how Robert Woods performed in that role before he got injured behind Cooper cup, he was about, you know, 20th wide receiver when it came to fantasy points per game before he went down, which is right below ish where Robinson is going at this point. I don't see any reason to continue to steam him up here. I don't see any reason to think that, team who signs player to long-term contract likes player is anything but noise to think about here. I mean, we have the obvious noise stuff here, you know, Matt Ryan, there's an it factor for Matt Ryan. I mean, that's total, total noise here. So there's a, there's, there was a headline for that. There was Mac Jones and his new swagger. Although I think Jones does project a little bit better than some people will give him credit for uh, that's total noise. We can just throw that away. Lamar Jackson throwing it better than ever. He's gained some weight. Eh, I think we could probably, noise and throw all that away this year but what i'm interested in a lot is trey lance and some of the struggles that he is having versus what some people are saying and then others are saying that lance is having no problems 
or not no problems, but is making big plays in camp. I think we're getting noise on both ends there. The big plays that are made in camp, the big throws, the down the field stuff, the the contested catches, all the wow plays that get people's attention are the least stable plays for projecting into the season. So what I would say is we know that Lance is going to start. We know he can run the ball. We know that offense has been good at enhancing production from the quarterback, unless you think Jimmy Garoppolo really is a top five type of quarterback, the way he's had his efficiency out of that offense. That's all you need to know. And unless Lance is playing himself out of a starting position, which I think is a near impossibility at this point, I would be fading the day in day out machinations about whatever is going on with Lance and what will happen going forward with him. All right. The last thing I want to talk about, since we're talking about signal and noise here uh, again, I mentioned how, that was uh, the signal and the noise was a book by Nate Silver back in the day when he started his his company five thirty eight. He actually made the logo a fox, and he started off with an introductory essay called "What the Fox Knows," and this was going through the fox versus the hedgehog. Now, for those who haven't heard about the fox and the hedgehog, they're meant to encapsulate two different types of thinkers, two different types of decision makers, two different types of predictors, pundits that would go into it. And initially, where this came from, the talk of the fox and the hedgehog, it all came back. Initially, there was an essay I should say, I should say, initially, Greek. There's a Greek poet, Archilochus. I'm just guessing. I may have the pronunciation there, but he had a, a short little quip that says, "The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing." And then it was expanded upon by Sir Isaiah Berlin in an essay, which he called "The Hedgehog, the Hedgehog and the Fox," describing these two different ways of thinking. And then it went even further when Silver was talking in his book about these decision makers and how he's basing his company. And why do we want to be foxes as opposed to being hedgehogs? So again, what a fox thinks generally is knows a lot of things about a lot of different areas, can apply that knowledge in different places, doesn't have a overwhelming ideology which governs how they interpret information, tries to interpret information on the most objective basis possible and is willing, not only willing, but eager to incorporate new evidence and change his or her opinion based upon how they're looking at things. That's how the fox thinks. Whereas the hedgehog is the exact opposite in a way where they have one underlying thematic macro view of their subject expertise. Normally they're an expert in one particular area. Their life experience is vastly affected by one particular way of thinking. And then all the evidence that they bring in, they look through it through the lens of does this back my overarching macro theory behind things? And if so, let me overweight it. Let me put it to the front of mind. Let me talk about it all the time. Is it ambiguous as to whether it backs it or not well let me frame it in a way that backs this overarching opinion this expert opinion that i have um this thematic opinion that i have and if it doesn't back my opinion then i'll just ignore it basically 
it, it doesn't go into my decision-making framework. It doesn't add evidence and help me change my opinion and make a better decision. Now, why did this thinking especially come up? Not just because of the, the signal and noise that I've been talking about when it came to NFL training camp, but uh, there was a funny little interaction that I had on the Twitter bot uh, over the weekend. And I didn't really expect this to happen, honestly, but there was a bit of a controversy with Quasi Adofa Mensa, a couple of different things that, that he had done. And the new general manager for the Vikings, he made a statement in an interview where he said that he basically admitted to the fact that you don't want to burn it down at quarterbacks. You don't want to just move on from quarterback, even if you know you do not have an elite quarterback like Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes. And someone happened to share with me a segment that Pat McAfee did on this. I didn't really care about McAfee versus anyone else talking about him. It was all over the news. Uh, Adolfo Mensa even had to come back and issue a clarification and an, uh, an apology for kind of, not apology, clarification on what had happened there. So I didn't care. But I did quote tweet a clip where McAfee is calling it alarming, you know, what he said about Kirk Cousins. And my point was, you know, that Quasi was getting a lesson here. You don't, even if you say something that is indisputably true, like does anyone believe, even Kirk Cousins maybe, does Kirk Cousins believe that he is as good as Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes? I mean, I guess you could be that deluded if you're an, if you're a player who really believes in yourself. Maybe that's possible. But even saying an indisputable truth like that will become a big part of the NFL media cycle. And I wasn't like critiquing necessarily the media cycle. It was more like Quasi is going to learn here. You think as a normal person coming from the outside who hasn't been part of this media, you know, storms that happen over and over again, a normal person coming from the outside, you're going to come in and you're going to say, hey, if I say Kirk Cousins is not Tom Brady, that's not going to cause a media firestorm, right? Why would that cause a media media firestorm? So what happened, what I thought was interesting in this is that I guess uh, McAfee, despite having two, 2 million followers, props to him. I didn't even realize he had so many followers. 2.5 million followers. Despite having that many followers, I guess he probably saw my blue check on here and then ended up writing something back to me on this one where he said, you know, an indisputable truth like this is for pundits, stooges, and stats nerds to say publicly, not the general manager of a team. It's rather obvious who grew up in team sports before and who hasn't. Team building is a real thing and an actual talent. I mean, he was, McAfee was kind of hitting the dunking on nerds bingo here. He hit um, stats nerds, you know, who's played in team sports, who hasn't, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, so, so he dunked on me, his, you know, his, his minions liked it. Um, I don't respond, but it just kind of really made me think about how, you know, McAfee has this view. He has, he, he's a hedgehog, okay, when it comes to these different things. His view is team building, culture. We hear culture a ton. If you want to talk about the ultimate hedgehog, there is this statement by Dean Pease, which was pretty hilarious. Um, well, hilarious to me, but people eat up this thing where Pease is talking about the defense coordinator, the Falcons, how they need to change the culture there. And the culture there accepted being a poor defense. And they haven't been a top 10 defense the entire, you know, for 15 years, only one time. And that's not acceptable. We got to change the culture, change the culture. I mean, Dean Pease was there last year. Dean Pease presumably was influencing the culture last year. 
and the Falcons were dead last in success rate. Uh, I mean, talent. So, so, so like I, as a Fox and how I analyze evidence, I'm going to say, let's look at what we can actually point to. Let's look at talent. Let's look at how things work in other arenas where you can be upfront and open and honest with people, just like you could be upfront and open and honest with Kirk Cousins about the fact that he's not Tom Brady. How does that really affect their performance? How big of an impact does it actually have with professionals on team building? I can use all those different things and say, this is my opinion on it. Now, when you're McAfee or when you're Pease and everything is culture and you've been had that drilled into your mind by coach after coach after coach, it's not like this is a unique insight. You hear it over and over again. Everything is team building. Everything is culture. Everything is down weighting the real evidence-based stuff like talent, then that's just how you're going to view every single cycle. And what was funny also when I talk about confidence in your opinion, another thing, hedgehogs are extremely confident, overconfident in their opinions versus foxes being willing to accept the fact that they may need to pivot off their opinions. Even when I was replying to someone else who commented on the McAfee thing, I wasn't replying directly to McAfee because, you know, there's no point in arguing with, with hedgehogs when it comes to this stuff. And I mentioned that I could be wrong about my opinion, but I don't believe that the team building aspect is that big. Of course he, you know, jumped it again, you know, he's going for more blood and he jumped it again saying, yes, you are wrong. See, like, I don't expect him or others to admit the uncertainty here. And it's just two different ways of looking at the world. So what I would say is if you are paying attention to, to pundits, prognosticators, others, look for these subtle traits of people who shove everything into one bucket, people who shove everything into culture, everything into team building, everything into establishing the run, everything into toughness, everything into their expertise. Because we have seen that, you know, experts do not make better predictions than others because they overweight their own individual experience when it comes to these things. Always look at those things with a little bit of skepticism and be more willing to take the opinions of people who can change their mind, who can pivot, and who don't have an overwhelming view of the world that is coloring every way that they look at something. All right, everyone, that was my that was my rant at the end there. Uh, appreciate everyone for tuning in. I'll be coming at you in a couple of days with more information on camp, some bold predictions for the NFL season. If you have any questions for me, go ahead, hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. Shoot me an email, kevin.cole at pff.com. Leave a comment in the YouTube here. I will follow up upon that. And, uh, you know, I send some replies back there because I appreciate everyone who has the, who has the um, courtesy to go ahead and tune in and to make a thoughtful comment on there. I will comment there. And, of course, rate review the pod if you enjoy what you're hearing there. Otherwise, I'll be talking with all of you guys in a couple of days. Thank you so much.